Our scripture reading this morning is from Exodus chapter 1, verses 1 through 14, and chapter 2, verses 24 and 25. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Iskara, Zebulon, and Benjamin, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All of the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died, and all his brothers, and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pythium and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. And all their work they made ruthlessly made them work as slaves. And God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham and Isaac and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. We thank you, Father, for the word of God, a word that is active, a word that is living, a word that meets us where we are today. And we want to receive your word today, Father, with gladness and with ready and receptive hearts. And so we ask you now, Holy Spirit, to come and use this book of Exodus as a launching place for our understanding of what the gospel is, who Jesus is, and what this means in regards to the glory of God. We, we long to see you in this book. So give us eyes, even today, to see. Give us comfort, give us hope, give us conviction, give us new affections for you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. About a year ago, our uh, 12-year-old son, Jeremiah, had one of those childhood epiphany moments. What I'm talking about is the, a moment when he realizes that the way his life is right now is not the way that life has always been. We were talking about the fact that technology has really changed our lives, and I was trying to help him understand that there was a day when we didn't have things like internet. And so I was telling him, Jeremiah, you know, there was a time when we didn't have internet. And then my wife jumped in and said, um, yeah, I mean, we had no email, um, no Skype, no Netflix, 
and no Google, right? It's like pre-Google era, right? You know? And he looked at us and he said, what? How did you survive? What'd you do for fun? How'd you live, right? In his mind, a world without internet is just like the Stone Ages, right? It's a world before Google is, you know, back when the crust of the earth is cooling. You can hardly imagine how we lived in that environment and how we survived. Those were the days of rotary telephones. Remember those? The days of long cords attached to green-colored phones in the wall and things of that. Remember when avocado was a cool color? I mean, all it's crazy things, right? This is a flashback to my childhood now, so... It's kind of interesting to think about the way that things used to be. And sometimes it's hard to even imagine what life was like. And and today we're going to launch into the book of Exodus. And I think that we're a little bit like my son when it comes to this book. Um, It's hard to imagine as New Testament believers what it was like to live during the time of the Exodus. In fact, this, this book gives us some incredible foundational material as it relates to what we see now in the New Testament, what we see in what's called the the New Covenant. You've heard a little bit um, from a video, and and also Bill mentioned it in regards to communion and the Lord's table, but, you know, things were remarkably different. There were themes, there were symbols, there were concepts that have deep biblical meaning for us as New Testament believers, or if you're in the process of reading your Bible, or even if you don't call yourself a Christian, there's things, there's words that you know that in the book of Exodus were unknown. Let me give you a few examples. Prior to the book of Exodus, there was no context for a phrase like the Lamb of God. There was no understanding of what the law was. No no context for what a sacrifice would mean in terms of blood sacrifice. There was no idea of Passover. There was no idea of tabernacle. There was no sense of wilderness wanderings. The the phrase manna from heaven, completely meaningless prior to Exodus. There there are all of these these symbols, these ideas that have deep and significant spiritual meaning that that were completely foreign to people prior to Exodus. No priesthood, no identity of Israel, no understanding of God as I am, no concept of Him as holy, and no idea of this God being near. So these are significant themes, and this relates to biblical theology and some some things that arc over all of the Bible. And many of them have their beginning, their, their birth, if you will, in the book of Exodus. There, there's one particular issue more foundational than any other, and we begin to see the dawn of it in Exodus, and that is the whole matter of salvation. The whole concept of redemption is, frankly, birthed in the Exodus narrative. We have this idea of what the Exodus is in terms of God redeeming his people, but prior to that time, God was not known as a saving God in this respect. He was not known as a delivering God. So this Exodus moment becomes a defining moment in our understanding of both God and a number of really important concepts in the Bible, especially the idea of salvation and redemption. A commentary put it this way in regards to the significance of the book of Exodus. It begins the normative Old Testament and biblical revelation of God's way of salvation. 
Exodus underlines the nature of God as holy and of humankind as sinners. It explains the meaning of blood and sacrifice. It is a a book of the grace which reaches down from heaven and of the law which teaches redeemed sinners to live in heavenly terms. While some of these great biblical truths are foreshadowed in Genesis, Exodus pulls them all together, giving them a shape and a definition that the rest of the Bible will not alter. Under the simplest of forms and by many a fascinating story, Exodus reveals fundamental truth and is, in fact, one of the Bible's greatest building blocks. That's how important this book is. In fact, uh, that comes from a great commentary. And by the way, we've put some resources for you on our website if you'd like to read along or follow in a couple commentaries i've highlighted some of the the best ones the most readable ones that would be helpful in understanding this book because frankly you need to understand exodus god even defines himself in terms of the exodus event in exodus chapter 20 when god gives the law the preamble to the law goes like this i am the lord your god who brought you out of the house of bondage you shall have no other gods before me Israel's understanding of who and what God is, our understanding of who and what God is, is conditioned on the Exodus narrative. So the events that are recorded, the laws that are given, the images that are portrayed, the worship that is inaugurated is foundational to what we understand as the gospel. And if you're not familiar with that term, by the gospel I mean that God is holy and we are sinners. And the only way to reconcile God's holiness and our sinfulness is a redemption that comes through Jesus Christ. That in effect, by dying on the cross, He rescues us from the slavery of our own sinfulness. We are, we are completely powerless to save ourselves, like the Israelites were powerless to save themselves. They needed, and we needed, a Redeemer to come and rescue us from our slavery. So this salvation out of Egypt with a sacrificial lamb and by blood, becomes a harbinger of what is to come. It it predicts in a, a type or a form or a model what will come through Jesus. But it does even more than that. The book of Exodus does more than just foreshadow or predict what's coming. It actually defines the terms for us. We would have no idea what John the Baptist meant when he said, Behold the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sin of the world. We wouldn't know what in the world he means were it not for the Exodus and the Passover and the sacrificial lamb and everything that's connected to this event. This book, College Park, is foundational to much of what we understand in the New Testament and therefore it is a very important book for us to study. So, let me give you an overview. What is the, what is the message of this book all about? What is, what is the primary message? You might be able to think about some of the stories that are contained within the book of Exodus. You could think of some famous ones, or maybe you don't know anything about the book of Exodus, and that's great. That's no no problem. We'll help you, and you'll learn along with us, and we'll review some stories for some folks. You'll learn some new ones, but there's some incredible stories about a Passover meal, about God's deliverance from the ten through the ten plagues, about um, the Red Sea crossing. Um, there's uh, wilderness wanderings as they struggle to figure out their own identity, and then wrestle with complaining against God and against Moses. There's some pretty funny things that they say, such as, you know, oh, we remember the days of Egypt when we had garlic and leeks and onions. To which Warren Wearsby says, this is one group you do not want singing, breathe on me, O breath of God. (laughs) We we read Exodus and we're just like, really? Do Do you have to act this way? And yet when we read it, we see ourselves because of the countless ways that 
we have complained about God's providences in our life. We see events like the building of the tabernacle, the Ark of the Covenant is described, and then we see God's glory come and fall and indwell the tabernacle. There's some amazing stories. But there's two texts that really give us sort of a signature understanding of what Exodus is all about. And I want just to show them to you. Take your Bible and look at Exodus chapter 6. The second one that we'll look at is Exodus chapter 40. Exodus chapter 6 is the story when God meets with Moses at the burning bush. When God says to him, take off your sandals because the place that you are standing on is what? Holy ground. And then God says, I am, I am. He he gives him this name that you may know as Jehovah or Yahweh in the Hebrew. But in Exodus chapter 6, God talks to Moses about what he's about to do. And I want you to see how closely connected what God is going to do with who God is. Notice how many times in Exodus 6, 6 to 8, God uses the phrase, I am the Lord. Listen for it. Look at it and see if you can find it in verses 6 to 8. I am the Lord. There's the first one. And I will bring you out of, out from the, under the burdens of the Egyptians and I will deliver you from slavery to them. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people and I will be your God. And you shall know that, here it is again, I am the Lord, your God, who has brought you out from the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give Abraham, Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. So you hear it? Three times. I am the Lord, verse 6, verse 7, and this final affirmation in verse 8, I am the Lord. So therefore, something that you need to know, this book of Exodus, it's not really about Israel. It's actually about God. It's important for you to understand, we're going to look at some incredible stories of Israel, see the way in which God took care of them and how he led them and things that they did and things that they didn't do. But at the end of the day, this book is not primarily about Israel. It is actually about God. The, the second text is... Um, Exodus chapter 40. It's all the way at the end. If if you want to learn something about kind of where a book is going, it's often helpful to just look at what how it ends. What's the climactic moment in this book? And we find it in Exodus 40. God has brought them through the Red Sea. He's defeated their enemies. He's given them His law. He's described for them what worship should be like. They've constructed the the tabernacle. All of the elements are involved that are involved. They've built it. And then this beautiful thing happens in Exodus 40. God shows up. Can you imagine what this would have been like? The God that you were afraid of on Mount Sinai. Don't come near the mountain. Don't touch it lest you die. Say to Moses, don't let God speak to us. You speak to us. And here God comes and he He dwells in the middle of their camp. Exodus 40, verse 34, Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, that's the tabernacle, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Exodus 40, 35, And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because of the cloud that settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up, From over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, they did not set out until the day it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all of their journeys. Man, don't miss the significance of this moment. 
Here's the God who rescued them from slavery, a God who gloriously and powerfully delivered from the powerful nation of Egypt, brought them out of their slavery, displayed His glory to them on Mount Sinai, issued His holy law. He now comes and He lives among His people. He has delivered His people and then He dwells in their midst. He is not like the so-called gods of other nations who are unmoved and uninvolved with the affairs down here on earth. No, this is a God who is holy, but He also is near. If you know your New Testament, you, you can't help but just think of John chapter 1, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory the glory is the only begotten of the father full of grace and truth so what is this book about it's about this exodus displays the god who delivers his people and then dwells among them So this book is essentially about God's passion to redeem His people, to pull them out of Egypt, and then be their God and dwell in their midst. This book is not just about the stories of Israel. This book fundamentally is about who and what God is. You could really divide the book up into three major sections, each of which tell us something about Israel, but also, more importantly, something about God. So if you want to think of what the overarching outline of Exodus would be like, it would look something like this. That in the first 13 chapters, you see Israel in Egypt. But in seeing them in Egypt, you're actually seeing God as the Savior of His people. Egypt is necessary so that you can see God as the Savior. Then you see Israel at Mount Sinai where God gives the Ten Commandments. And you see God as the holy companion. He's there. He's holy. He's righteous. And then Israel around the tabernacle from chapter 24 to chapter 40, you see God who is the indweller of His people. He comes and lives among them. It's really a remarkable picture. And what you see over and over in this book is that Israel is really not the main point of Exodus. The real point of Exodus is the display of God. We, we see a God who controls history, a God who reveals himself as the I am, a God who is holy, a God who acts to save his people, who acts in judgment, a God whose anger can be averted, a God who speaks, who is transcendent, a God who lives among his people. What this is, College Park, is Israel is simply a canvas upon which God paints a picture of his own glory. The book of Exodus is certainly about Israel, but it is not the main subject. The main subject, the focal point, the glory of Exodus is God. The canvas is God's people. And do you know, God hasn't just done this canvas glory thing with Israel. He's also done that with us who've named the name of Christ. The Apostle Paul says something strikingly similar about this display of God's glory in Ephesians chapter 2. Take your Bible and go look at that text. This, This passage helps us to understand what God's purpose is in redemption. So, did did God... Remember the moment when you received Christ, if if you have? The moment when you understood the gospel and, and you heard the message that Jesus died for sinners 
and you knew, I'm a sinner, and you, you felt the overwhelming weight of God's holiness, you, you could feel God's judgment because of that deserved judgment, but you understood the beauty of the cross, and you knew that if you received Christ as your Savior, your, your sins could be forgiven, and by faith, you put your trust in something that was done 2,000 years ago for you, and then you became a new creation, the old was gone, the new had come, you were filled with the Spirit, and you became a completely new person from the inside out. Why did all of that happen? Because you were such a great catch? (laughs) Because God needed your help? Because of your great personality? Because of your innate righteousness? No, 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 no. You know why He did all of that? Well, let's see in Ephesians 2. See if you can answer the question. Verse 4. Ephesians 2, but God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, that's our slavery, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Verse 7, so that, whenever you see so that in the Bible, it means that he's explaining everything else that has just come. So why do we have all of these things that are happening in terms of redemption? And here's the answer to the question I just asked. So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Why were you redeemed? So you could be a canvas to display the glory of God's grace in your life. Why are you in this world? Why are you here? Why is the gospel so glorious? Not just because God saved you from your sins, but because all of heaven looks at God's affectionate love for you and His particular calling upon your life and the divine plan to redeem people to Himself and all of heaven marvels not at you. They marvel at God. All of creation would say, Why do you love these people? And the answer is not because we are so attractive and appealing and so lovely and easy to love. The reason He loves us is because we are a canvas that says something infinitely glorious about who and what He is. So the Gospel is not about us. Oh, no, no, no. No, the Gospel is about the glory of God. In the same way, Exodus is not about Israel. Exodus... Exodus is about the glory of God. So, how does this book begin? Let me give you a little bit of introduction to the book with the first 14 verses. These, these first 14 verses of Exodus 1, as you go back to that passage, they very quickly set the stage in which the book takes place. And this book, you need to know, is connected to other parts of the Bible. Particularly, it's one of five books, the Pentateuch, the five books of Moses, It's connected to the book of Genesis. In fact, in the original Hebrew, the first word in verse 1 is the word and. And that's by design. You begin a word with and, it implies that there was something that was just left off that now you're continuing. And really, Genesis 50 is where Exodus really begins. Because Genesis 50 ends with Joseph's death in Egypt and then takes us right into this story of God by virtue of his people. Joseph was the beloved son of Jacob. He was the one who possessed this coat of many colors. He was the 11th son. All the other sons, as you see in the text, become the 12 tribes of Israel. Jacob, later his name is changed to Israel. 
Jacob is the son of Isaac, who is the son of Abraham, the man that God called out of Ur and gave the promise in Genesis 17 that in him all nations of the world would be blessed. Joseph was dearly loved by his father and thus hated by his brothers. As the Bible tells us, they sold him into slavery. Eventually he makes his way to Egypt as a slave, becomes uh, appointed eventually to a place of prominence in the Egyptian government, where because of a dream that um, Pharaoh has and Joseph's ability to interpret it, is able to save the entire nation from famine. He famously plays a little bit of a trick on his brothers, hiding his identity and then revealing it, then only to forgive them of their previous crimes. And then he relocates his entire family, his father's household and all of his brothers, to the land of Goshen, a province in Egypt. Verse 1 begins with the names of these sons, these sons who become the twelve tribes of Israel. And there's a data point that's given to us early on. It says that all the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. It may be the number 70 to indicate that it's a small group of people, or the number 70 can also represent um, spiritual completeness. Like, it began in a complete way. Regardless, the point is, is that God is providentially orchestrating all of the events. Joseph famously says that you intended it for evil, but God intended it for good, meaning the trajectory of his life. And as we move into Exodus chapter 1, we see something that sounds very similar to Genesis 1.28 in regards to the fruitfulness and the multiplication that Jacob's family possesses. Verse 7 says, The people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, so that the land was filled with them. So Exodus begins with this growing and expanding nation who are God's people. Then there's a major turn in verse 8. The text tells us that a new king begins to reign in Egypt who did not know Joseph in verse 9. A couple things to help you understand this. According to Exodus 12:40, the Israelites were in captivity and in slavery for about 430 years. So from the time of Joseph to the time of their, ex- their exodus, 400 years. That's a long time. I mean, think of that just in, in, in your own personal history. That would be your great, at least, your great, great grandfather. That puts my lineage all the way back during the golden years in the 1600s in Netherlands. That's a long, long time ago. And so in that 400 years, there's, there's a lot of time for things to change, for, for dynasties to come and go. And when we hear that, that the king didn't know Joseph, it probably didn't mean that he didn't know about Joseph's existence. Certainly, with a man who had saved the nation from disaster through famine, he was known There's probably another meaning to that word. It's connected to the likely historical developments and the political tensions that were going on. See, during the time of Joseph, historians believe that a a group of people outside of the nation of Egypt came in and conquered the Egyptian people. They were called the Hykos pharaohs. They were Asiatic folks outside of Egypt, and they, they ruled Egypt for a number of years. And then at some point in time, during that 400 years, there was a, an overflow of the foreign powers that were ruling Egypt. 
um, a nationalism, if you will, developed. And Egyptians revolted and they threw off the, the Hykus pharaohs and Egyptian pharaohs began to reign. And as a result of this resurgent of, resurgence of nationalism, it's believed that these Egyptians began to view foreigners with contempt. That the foreigners are, are the problem. They, they were the ones who oppressed us, and so they came to power and then began to view people within their own nation who are not Egyptian as a potential national security threat. In fact, that's what you hear in the text. And this, I mean, this makes sense, doesn't even in our, our own day in culture. You can see how this happened. I mean, it happened in, in World War II in Germany. That you have a particular target of the Jews who are a national security threat. And so you start passing laws to make their life difficult. And then you begin amping up the, the, the difficulties that they have until finally it's just full-on oppression. If this is the case and a nationalism developed within the country of Egypt, then it would make sense that a Jewish prime minister 400 years ago would not even be on the radar, let alone mentioned or his policies would be at all embraced, because after all, he was part of the foreign invaders that took over our country. And as you'll see in the text, after a while, this oppression gets greater and greater and greater until there is eventually genocide, as this xenophobic mentality begins to reign in the nation of Egypt. Take a look, for instance, in verse 9. And notice the progression from deal shrewdly to oppression to ruthlessness. Pharaoh, he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply, and if war breaks out, join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, let us set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. And they built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. The Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So there's this growing situation. It's not static. Verse 12, So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service and mortar and brick and all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. So do you see the progression? Do you hear this? Eventually, in fact, next week, we'll talk about the fact that it got to the point where they couldn't control the population, so they just went full out and said, all male babies must be killed. Genocide. The tension increases. Until the people of God feel the full force of a government policy of slavery. And then just feel this. This went on for hundreds of years. God's promise to Abraham about blessing and land and fruitfulness and blessing all nations must have seemed a long ways off. So what Moses does in the opening chapter of Exodus is to set up for us the enormity of the challenge that God's people faced. That God had led them providentially to Egypt in order to protect them, and now they are victims of national and systemic abuse. And it's hard to imagine how hopeless this must have felt. People groups all over the world in various snippets of history know what this feels like. Certain the Jews in World War II felt this way. Certainly African Americans in the 
1800s and early 1900s felt this way. When you have a a government-sanctioned policy in terms of laws that's creating a culture that you can't get around the difficulties that are around you and have that go on for a hundred plus years, it just feels hopeless. One commentator says this, they were there by divine command under divine promise awaiting divine intervention. That's a hard place to be. You know you're where you're supposed to be. you got a promise from God, and you're waiting for God to make good on His promise. Of these things, however, they saw no outward sign. Heaven above was as silent on earth around, or excuse me, heaven above was as silent as earth around was threatening. That's a hard place to live. Some of you are living in that place today world around you is falling apart you've got promises in god's word you're clinging to them you're crying out to him and there's silence they had become the slaves of egypt and their lives were filled with ruthless bitter work it's not even until chapter two that god's name is even mentioned look at chapter two and verse 23 During those days, during those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Don't miss this next, this little word, their cry for rescue. From slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning. And God remembered His covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. Man, that's hopeful. In the midst of all of the groaning, in the midst of all of the challenges connected with their lives, God knew. They cry out to God for rescue. He remembers His covenant. Under all of this oppression, the people of Israel no doubt thought, God, where are you? Do you see what's going on? Do you know what's happening? Where are you? Which is something I guarantee you that at least once in your walk of faith, you will say and you will feel, which is why you need a book like Exodus. Because the answer to all of those questions, do you see God, do you know, is yes. And Exodus is the story of a God who rescues His people as He responds to their groaning for help. This is a great and fabulous book. In fact, it's a book that I think should lead you often to worship. I think if I've done my job well, and if you've done your job well in listening, that the result will be there will be many Sundays when you will leave here from the book of Exodus going, God, you are amazing in fact there's a psalm psalm 106 often called the exodus psalm and it says this in verses one and two if you read the rest of the psalm it would talk about god's deliverance from from egypt it becomes the the signature defining moment in terms of what god is like and the psalmist says this praise the lord oh give thanks to the lord for he is good for his steadfast love endures forever who can utter the mighty deeds of the lord or declare all his praise And he says this 
on the platform of the Exodus event. So here's what we just need to think about is this. How is it that Exodus makes us sing? And here's the first one. It's this. That the Exodus shows us that while life can be very hard, God always keeps His promise. Exodus makes us sing, folks, because even when life is very hard, and it is very hard at times, isn't it? Life is very hard. God always keeps His promise. You know, it's one thing to hear about this in a general sort of way. God keeps His promise. It's another thing when you see an example of it specifically in the Bible. Exodus becomes exhibit A when it feels as though God has forgotten when it feels as though God has abandoned, when, when God doesn't hear our cries. Exodus reminds us, no, 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 it is only a matter of time until He acts. That God is a redeeming, a saving, a rescuing God. That even, even though life is hard, even though things are difficult, they still all fit into God's plan. In fact, without the slavery in Exodus the redemption wouldn't have been as glorious. Without the ruthlessness of the work and the power of the Egyptians, the departure of Israel by the ten plagues and the dividing of the Red Sea wouldn't have been nearly as miraculous. In fact, it is the slavery and the suffering that makes the deliverance so glorious. And why is that important? Here's why. Because in the midst of sufferings that God providentially allows in your life, you need to know that those sufferings and those hardships and those challenges that make life very difficult, they become the platform upon which God's glory can be seen even in a greater and more fabulous way. Philip Ryken, in his commentary on this wonderful chapter, says, Our sufferings help us look for our salvation. You know this, that when you are in a hard place, you pray more, you listen more, you you, you sing more with, with greater fervency because you need help. Suffering serves the good purpose of God. Then he quotes Spurgeon, who says this, The whip of persecution is helpful because it makes us learn that this is the house of bondage and moves us to long after and seek for the land of liberty, the land of joy. In other words, pain in this respect is good because it reminds us that we are longing for something far beyond just the comforts of daily life. Exodus shows us that even in the midst of long seasons of painful waiting, God's promises are still true. Listen to me. It is only a matter of time until God delivers you. It may not come until the very end of your life, but I promise you, God will deliver you. And Exodus shows us that. Secondly, Exodus reminds us that the end game is God's glory. When you read the book of Exodus through a God-centered lens versus an Israel-centered lens, it changes everything you see. You, You come to understand that there is so much more going on in this book than just God building a new nation or rescuing people from their oppression. What God is doing and what He aims to do is to magnify Himself through what He does with Israel. 
This, this tiny collection of people will serve as a narrative telescope to bring the majesty and the glory of God near. They don't serve as a microscope to make something small big. No, they serve as a telescope to make something big become very near. And Israel becomes the telescope by which we are able to see the nearness and the beauty of God. God didn't just deliver His people because they were abused. He delivered them because He is greater than Pharaoh and the false gods of Egypt. The Exodus, therefore, is not just about an epic struggle between Moses and Pharaoh or between Israel and Egypt. Ultimately, it's another skirmish in the great and ongoing battle between God and Satan. The issue is, will Israel serve Pharaoh or will they serve God? And God intervenes and says, they will serve me. In fact, he says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose, Exodus 9, 16. Why? To show you my power and so that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. You can't understand the hardness of Pharaoh's heart unless you see it through the lens of God's glory. You see, when God's glory is the end game, it changes how you see everything. It changes how you see your suffering today. It changes how you see difficulties. It changes how you see opposition. It changes how you see delays. And it even changes how you see success. And when God's people, and when you forget about God's glory, when you and God's people start focusing on their circumstances, bad things happen. People say stupid things like, Aaron, um, yeah, we threw this gold in the fire and this calf came out. What? Or, is it because there's no graves in Egypt that you've taken us out to die in this wilderness? They'd be glad I wasn't Moses. I'd be like, yeah, that's why. I'm, I'm grave hunting for you. You know, I mean, what? what is that? But when you see God's glory, when you have tasted His presence, you won't go anywhere without it. God says to Moses, go on, go on the land of Israel. I'm not going. And Moses wisely says, whoa, whoa, whoa. if you're not going, we're not going. Why? Because God's glory is the end game. Third, Exodus awakens new affections for the gospel. Again, the gospel is you receive Christ as your Savior. He died for your sins He became your Lamb of God so that you could be made right with your Creator. When you get that, you read Exodus completely differently. In the New Testament, it says that our old self was crucified with Him so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Where does that motive, where does that motif come from that comes from Exodus? We hear the book of Ephesians say, you who were once afar off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, like with the tabernacle. You can't help but see throughout the book of Exodus slaves who become free and think about the fact that you were set free. When the law is given, when the tabernacle is built, when God dwells in it, you can't help but rejoice at the thought of a holy God who dwells with His people. 
And what's more, you can't help but think about Revelation 21 where it says, Behold, the dwelling place with God is, of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be His people and God Himself will be with them as their God. It's no wonder that in the book of Revelation they sing the song of Moses and they sing the song of the Lamb. If you have a gospel-affected heart, you will read Exodus with gospel-affected eyes. You will see salvation as we know it in this book, and you will rejoice. You will see yourself in this book, a slave, desperate for deliverance, completely helpless, and in awe that God, through the Passover, redeemed you and called you His own. Fourth, And finally, Exodus will help you see Jesus more clearly. After his resurrection and on the Emmaus Road, Jesus appeared to two of his disciples. And Luke chapter 24 tells us that beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. Oh, to have that commentary. The story of the gospel through Jesus Christ is the theme of the entire Bible and it is especially the theme of Exodus. Jesus is personally involved and he's pictured in Exodus. In fact, Jude chapter, or Jude verse 5 tells us that it was Jesus who delivered his people out of Egypt. Matthew 2.15 tells us that Jesus' life was a pattern in regards to the Exodus. In fact, it says that Jesus came out of Egypt in order to fulfill the text that says, out of Egypt I have called my son. Jesus becomes the Israel coming out of bondage, coming out of Egypt. He was born as a Savior. He was rescued from His enemies. He passed through the waters of baptism. Think Red Sea. He went into the wilderness. He went up on a mountain. And there He gives the Sermon on the Mount. It's Jesus who is the Passover lamb who dies during the very feast that marked the Exodus deliverance. Jesus is himself the bread of life. It is he who gives living water. As you read Exodus, you can't help but see him. You can't help be reminded of all of what he means to you. Again, Phil Riken, as we trace their spiritual journey, we discover that we need exactly what the Israelites need. We, we need a liberator, a God to save us from slavery and destroy our enemies. We need a provider, a God to feed us bread from heaven and water from the rock. We need a lawgiver, a, a God to command us how to love and serve Him. We need a friend, a God to stay with us day and night. You know what this book is about? The glorious message of the Bible from the beginning to the end is that there is freedom from the slavery of sin through Jesus Christ. And the book of Exodus is essentially about God's display of that plan. As you see the nation of Israel come out of the Exodus bondage, you can't help but think that God saved you out of your own bondage, the bondage of sin. Their Redeemer was Moses. Ours, His name is Jesus. And what happens in the book of Exodus, you see the glory of redemption begin to shine, and the book of Exodus is the dawn. It's the sun that begins to come over the, the horizon as you see the dawning of this beautiful plan called redemption. And oh, how glorious it is. Father, we thank You that in You 
this plan of redemption is fulfilled and made perfect. We thank You that in Your Son, You have made it possible for atonement to take place. Thank You that this book of Exodus speaks so clearly of Your ability to be God. And today we want to simply humbly receive this book and recognize that when we are in moments of suffering, You are worthy to be trusted. Recognize that You are able to deliver us and one day You will act. And then, Lord, for others who need to recognize that, God, I need to be rescued from my sin through receiving Christ as my Savior, that they could enter into the very plan of Exodus fulfilled in the person of Jesus. So thank you for this book. Glorify your name as we walk through its pages. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Hey, if there's something that you need someone to pray with you about, something going on in your life, or something in regards to today's sermon, these folks are up here at the front, would love to pray with you, all right? God bless you, College Park. I love you. Thanks for coming.